I'd say good health is hard to find. Even worse, sometimes it can be murder. Sounds like it's time for episode 112 of Pop Art, where we find the pop culture in art and the art in pop culture. It's the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and all select a film from the more art classic indie foreign side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your They Are Nice Because They Are Rich host, Howard Cast. Today, I'm happy to welcome as my guest, film instructor and script writer, Jennifer Van Sile, who has chosen as her film, Bong Joo Ho's South Korean study of employer-servant dynamics, Parasite. Well, I have chosen Claude Chabrol's French study of the same, La Ceremonie, both films about servants who, shall we say, turn a bit deadly. <laughs> Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. So to begin, Jennifer, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? As you mentioned, I've been a script and screenwriting instructor for years, and I also film history and stuff. In terms of writing, most of my writing has been in the documentary field. I lived in China and worked for China Central Television doing documentaries. That was the most unbelievable experience. Don't ask me any questions about it. It'll be an endless discussion. But then we'd have to kill you. Yeah, it really was amazing. Then I came back and I worked for the Pewter History Museum. And that was also an equally fascinating experience because it was all high-tech documentaries. If you haven't been to the Computer History Museum in Mountain California, Silicon Valley, it is a trip in itself. So I wrote the documentaries for their little installations and whatnot. That was a wonderful experience. And then I, I scripted a independent film called Ballerina One Woman Show. I had a friend who danced with some of the greats at the time, like Nureyev, and trained with Balashin. And so the issue was what happens when someone is injured? How do they live? What do they do? And it was a whole thing about aging as a performer. The book Cinematic Storytelling is about visual storytelling. Because I was teaching a screenwriting, I found that a lot of my students had studied literature and whatnot, but they hadn't really got the idea about movies being sound in picture. I realized that there was a book that was needed to explain how to tell stories with pictures and with sound. And of course, dialogue and all. There's a lot of different styles. I mean, Woody Allen didn't use a lot of visuals. Boyhood is not wall-to-wall, you know, cinematic storytelling either. The book is about how to uh, harness your visuals and your sound and whatnot and integrate into a film story. And where can one find this book? Anywhere. Amazon. Okay, so it's in bookstores and online. Everywhere. And online. Everywhere. It's a very common textbook for film programs across the country. It's in 12 languages. Oh, God, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is Parasite. First, some information about the film. Parasite is a South Korean black comedy thriller released in 2019. It was directed by Bong Joon-ho and written by Boon and Han Jin-won. It stars, and just please forgive me here, Song Kang-ho, Lee Soon-kyun, Cho yo Jong, Choi Woo-shik, Park So-dam, Yang Hee-jin, Lee Jong-yoon, Park Myung Hoon, Jung Ji So, Young Hyun Jun, Park Kyun Rock, and Park 
Seong Jun, and I probably got most of those incorrect at some point. The Kims are a working class family living in a basement apartment in the poor section of Tao. They barely get by doing whatever they can to make money. When the son, Ki Woo, gets a job tutoring English to the daughter of the wealthy Park family, he helps the other members of his family worm their way in as art tutor, housekeeper, and chauffeur. But the class differences eventually drive the two families into a violent confrontation. Before talking about the film proper, let's explore another aspect of both films. There have been a lot of films about servants and their relationship to their employers, with a huge number of them ending in violence, usually on the part of the servant. You know, remember, we have a phrase, the butler did it, which actually someone did a study of and found out that in mystery stories, the butler has never done it, <laughs> perhaps one time. Why do you think these films resonate with the audience? I'll start with Parasite. It's very different than, um, I'll, I'll just give it the English pronunciation, the ceremony. In the ceremony, both characters, Sophie and Jean, and we'll discuss in a second, are the disenfranchised. So they're like the Kim family, kind of equivalent. And they are unhappy right from the start. And Jean encourages Sophie, the new uh, housekeeper, to join her in her, her displeasure. But the one thing that is remarkable and I think so appealing about the part of the Kim family, the impoverished family that lives in the basement apartment, is they never complain. And the father is always saying, oh, you have a plan, you have a plan, you have a mission. I mean, they're living in abject poverty in the opening scenes, as we see, and yet they have ambition, they try hard, the kids do well at school, and they just have unbelievable courage. But what I like about the film is that it's not really so sappy that these are the no the noble poor. They are hard. They are vicious sometimes. And they're not perfect people. And they break the rules. The daughter especially is willing to do just about anything to get ahead. So this is one of the things I find very appealing about the film. Well, George Bradshaw and Bertolt Brecht, I think, always had this attitude that our sympathies should always be with the poor, but do not turn your back on them because they will stab you in the back. <laughs> right, right. I think that when you see such abject poverty, what happens is that the audience is getting increasingly more angry about the situation. So as the audience's anger is building up, they're just going through their business, working hard, trying to get a job. So our respect for them increases because we just want to shout at the society and say, this is so wrong. This is terrible. So our engagement is that we have been given the socioeconomic picture. Once we visit the parks, we see the rich and poor and we see the injustice of it as audiences seeing the macrocosm and so we're rooting for them, even though they're not asking us to do that. I think it makes some very good points here, especially the suggestion there's this inherent sort of tension or conflict with being poor. I also think that everybody can identify with this conflict. We mm -hmm. all have bosses. We all have bosses we wouldn't mind putting out of there and our misery. Mm -hmm. And even when you get along with your boss or employer, there's still an inherent conflict in both films here, I think it's interesting in how it reveals that no matter how nice your boss is, they are still your boss. And mm. at some point, they will make it known. It's a one wonderful example because in the film Parasite, when Kevin Kiwu first shows up, he's the first one that enters the family, the Park family home. And she doesn't ask him his name. And then she's saying he's teaching math to the daughter. 
Mrs. Park's daughter. And she says, we'll just call you Kevin. <laughs> He's invisible. And I think what you're saying is she was very, didn't intentionally be unkind, but he's so insignificant to her that she'll name him. Well, in the 1800s, 1900s, maids were basically all given the same name when they got hired. This is because people changed maids a lot and you couldn't remember the individual names of the maids. So you just gave them the same name. I also think it's interesting that servant-employer relationship was not overtly seen as a class conflict for a long time. Mm -mm. Even in movies that ended in violence, it wasn't necessarily seen as poor against the rich and the rich holding the poor down. Even in Mm -hmm. such shows as Upstairs, Downstairs, the conflicts aren't always over class. One might say that sometimes they have been about class and the subtle, mainly in how blacks and other ethnic groups like Asians have been portrayed on screen. Usually these characters are comic relief, and especially in film where the maids are especially sassy mm. and even stand up to their employer. Right. It's not until we get to the 60s and on where class becomes part of the conflict in such films as The Servant and The Go-Between. Britain was particularly attuned to this because they've always had the class system. They even have it mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. And that was the period of the angry young man kitchen sink dramas that lasted mm-hmm. until the late 70s when swinging London became the main aesthetic Mm-hmm. Why did you choose the film? I'm very interested in what's going on in Korea, South Korea, because they just keep producing such amazing work. It's like an epicenter. I kept thinking, like, you know, why is this epicenter of fantastic films and TV shows? I had seen Parasite, and I love movies that have a strong social issue at its core. Well, we will be talking more later on about the emergence of what's called the Korean wave or sometimes Korean new wave. What did you think upon first seeing Parasite, and do you think it still holds up? Better every time. As I was mentioning about visual storytelling, when you compare the ceremony to Parasite, they're shot so very differently. The story idea is very similar, but the rendering is so very different. In films like that, where the director is using all the cinematic elements, you know, sound, picture, camera, motion, everything's going on at once. There's so much embedded in every scene with that kind of filmmaker. As soon as I saw, for example, that first shot, the tilt down, you know, my feeling is, okay, I'm in the hands of somebody who's really going to deliver a great cinematic story. Well, I first saw it when it opened. I had become aware of the South Korean new wave in film in 2006 when I saw Boone's The Host. Uh, it had a very cheeky tone about it. It's very postmodern. Yeah. And because of that, I continued looking for South Korean films. And yeah. I'm now a big fan. First saw Parasite. I thought it was a bit slow and awkwardly structured. The second time I saw it recently, I was amazed by it. Yeah. Like you said, from the very first shot, yeah. there is something about this movie. Yeah. Why I did find it a bit slow and awkward, I will mention later on. But mm-hmm. it's a captivating story with well-developed characters. Mm-hmm. I was going to agree with you. What's the big dramatic objective? Usually more American-style films will have a very concrete objective, like what, where's the treasure? Here, it's sort of like, let's get out of poverty the best we can. And so we're not really sure what's going to happen. However, there's so much potency going on in those scenes. The relationship between the father and them doing the pizza boxes, like even though there's not what we call the A story, you know, the overriding action plotline, not much is going on in that, but there's a lot of B story, character development, relationship development. And we're also put on notice that 
that this daughter and son, the whole family will break the rules if necessary. And they're all lying and they're all deceiving, but they're a very united, sweet, sweet families. What are some of your favorite scenes? Oh, well, the final scene, you know. It's just Do you mean like, the scene of violence or the yeah, sort of fantasy The, the, violent, the violent scenes, it's like operatic. You don't know that it's coming. You know, and it's Korean film, so they're doing the, I think, an intentional association with TV representation of the Indian who has war paint on his face, only it's blood. The guy comes out like that, and the little kid's obsessed with the American Indian, and he has Native American headdress on. He's ordered from America. There's all this kind of imagery about that. So here comes the guy, the housekeeper's husband, with this massive knife. And I love that it's daylight, noon or something. And you have this massacre in daylight at a kid's birthday party. So there's just so much bizarre stuff going on. I had to watch it two and three times to make sure I got who's who in that upheaval. That moment when the guy pinches his nose because the smell of the housekeeper's husband and he wants his car keys and he has to move the husband to get his car keys and then he pinches his nose and that's the first time there's a moment of solidarity between Mr. Kim and the housekeeper's family, the housekeeper and her husband, you know, were opponents for the same job for the most part and all wordless. Love scenes like that where so much is being communicated in pure cinema. For me, there are a couple of scenes that always stand out. The smell scene, especially that one earlier when the Parks think that all the Kims smell the same and the Kims are going, well, we're going to have to start using soap, but different soaps, I think. But it doesn't really matter. Once you get that smell in you, it's almost impossible to get rid of it. The flooding of the Kims' home is both funny and horrifying, where the daughter sits on the toilet and oh, yeah. just gets smoked trying to troll it. <laughs> she, she lights up a cigarette. There are two nice dialogue scenes. One where the Kim mother describes themselves as cockroach, which when the light comes on, they scurry off and hide, which is what happens soon after that. The parks come home early and they have to scurry off and hide. The other is when the father says that the parks are nice people for being rich. And the mother says they're only nice because they are rich. In other words, yeah. mm -hmm. the parks can afford to be nice. The Kims really can't. I think it's true. I like uh, that very much. And I don't mean that one is nice and one isn't, but the parks can afford certain niceties and politesse and things like that that the Kims can't, a certain generosity to a point because they have to still maintain their capital and whatnot and you never know what their business dealings are. But there's certain niceties that are inexpensive for somebody who has some wealth and very expensive to somebody who doesn't. I think this is even more dramatized in La Ceremonie uh -huh. in which they pretend to treat Sophie as someone sort of on their level, but she's not, and she never will be, but they can afford to do that. Mm -hmm. The director is Bong Joon-ho. I take it that you're probably very familiar with him. Do you have a favorite film of his, and what do you think of his directing here? See, I've seen The Host a long time ago. To me, it was scary. Like I don't feel comfortable watching movies like that, but I can see the artistry clearly. I don't think I've seen Snowpiercer, and if I have, it's a blur in my memory, and I apologize, not because it wasn't great if I did see it, but it would have been a long time ago. The reason I love this film is just that you can tell such a political story in such an entertaining way without being virtue signaling. It's so raw. It feels true. And if there's lessons and they're not finger wagging at you, you get to decide who you like because it's a gray. It's not clear. 
But when you see how devious the Kims are to get into the house and how many lies are being told and how much deception and what they do to the former housekeeper, how they get her fired and her husband, they tie up the husband downstairs in the base. There's a lot of stuff going on that's deeply devious. And yet we understand because given their poverty, the rules don't apply to them. Well, Wong is the reason why I got into South Korean films. And he's my favorite Korean film director, though I also like so many others very much. And I've seen almost all his feature films. Mm-hmm. The only feature I haven't seen is Okja, which I started to watch. Oh, yeah, I think it, I've seen that. Yeah. It wasn't working for me. After about 15 minutes, I said, nope, I'm out of here for a variety of reasons. So the only films of his I haven't liked are the ones in English, because Snowpiercer also didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. But he, like many other Korean filmmakers, especially the main ones we get over here, are able to combine pop culture with artistry. Yes. That's very postmodern. To paraphrase a previous guest on Pop Art, he said, the films are too entertaining not to be pop culture and too good not to be art. He's known for his tonal shifts. Uh, the sun changes in mood in a scene. And you see that both in the flooding scene where you're both horrified and at times just laughing. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you can see it in the scene where the parks are coming home early, where not only do they have to hide everything and make some dinner, they also have this problem with with the previous housekeeper. It's also very horrifying, but it's also very funny. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in American films by Tarantino and mm-hmm. the Cohen brothers. brothers. They're experts at that. And that's very much my taste, where you find humor in the worst corners of humanity. There is humor in that, because it's always the juxtaposition. The other day I was driving and I stopped at a bus stop and I turned and I looked and there was this picture of this gorgeous woman in her, basically her bra and nothing else, and this homeless guy sitting there. The juxtaposition of that was so telling and disturbing and It's very real in many ways. Yeah. The the Korean films are heavily influenced by American films, especially the majority of the ones we get here. They're genre films. They're thrillers, they're sci-fi, they're horror, they're crime. In contrast, for example, with the Romanian New Wave, which came about at the same time as the Korean New Wave, those films are more political and social commentary. Mm -hmm. But Bong shows the influence of Hitchcock here in his use of stares and Mm -hmm. voyeurism. And you can especially see that when the parks come home early and the Kims have to not only hide that they've been eating and using the main room, but they have to do something about the previous housekeeper and her husband living downstairs. And the parks also have a collection of Hitchcock films on a shelf. Oh, that's funny. He came from a very um, artistic family. He's got writers in his family. His father was a graphic artist himself. One of his grandfather was a writer. Another way the Bong echoes Hitchcock, he tends to cut in the camera. He storyboards everything and shoots that, which means there's no extra footage to play around with. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock learned to do this after making Rebecca where Mm -hmm. Selznick drastically re-edited the film. So the director soon drove Selznick's crazy because in the films he made later, there wasn't any extra footage for Selznick to use to re-edit the films. Right. He shot in such a way, he couldn't edit around it too easily. Yeah. But I think my favorite film of his is Memories of Murder, which is a dramatization of the first reported serial killer. 
Clinton in South Korea. Oh. Mm. The screenplay is by Bong and Han Jin Won. This is Han Jin Won's only feature. How do you feel about the screenplay? Oh, I love the screenplay, and it is a little bit chaotic in places, but I think that adds to it because if the screenplay is too predictable, the audience might be less engaged, but I'm always wondering what's going to happen next. So there's enough character flaws set up at the beginning to satiate my need for suspense. I also like that the families were so beautifully differentiated. All the family members, the girl was very different than the boy. The boy was much more of a rule follower and the girl was, you know, whatever in some ways more of the instigator to things than the brother was. I also like the things about the use of the scholar stone all the way through. Talk about cinematic storytelling, the book. One of the things I noticed that is wonderful, I love this in movies, when they repurpose a prop. So the very beginning, that scholar's stone is a gift. And then it turns out, well, there are too many of them in the, in the house. And the kid doesn't really want the stone. But anyway, it's going to bring you good bounty. So even during the flood, hangs on to this hope. The stone is this hope, kid and his family. And they take it wherever they go. And at the very end, that stone is what the kid gets beaten by the housekeeper's husband. There's lines and lines of meaning. And when you're saying, you know, did you like it better the first time? Does it hold up? It holds up so beautifully because each time you see more and more of, of this kind of imagery. I mean, going camping, the TP, this kid's fascination with American folk, which is really folklore from the 1950s that has some kind of resonance in Korean culture, which is kind of surprising, right? But I think I certainly agree with you that it is not predictable. <laughs> the movie, no. the plot is not predictable. No. And I agree. It's a really good screenplay. Bong started working on the story as a play in 2013. Yeah. And it was inspired by Bong being a tutor for a rich family. Yeah. Bong said, quote, I got this feeling that it was infiltrating the private lives of complete strangers. Every week I would go into their house and I thought how fun it would be if I could get all my friends to infiltrate the house one by one. You know, I love that you say that because that quote, because remember in the very beginning of the film, the mom, Mrs. Park tells the daughter, the Kim daughter, that their son has been traumatized because he sees ghosts in the house. Do you remember that? What is interesting about that is that the mother says he sees ghosts. The kid probably sees the housekeeper and the husband scrambling for food at night or something. And the kid doesn't see them as human, sees them as ghosts because he's not used to people who look poor, who are old, who are imperfect. It's the same thing about the invisibility of Kevin, the tutor who shows up. The mother doesn't recognize him as having his own name. He's also invisible, so we'll just slap this name on. And when we turn to La Ceremonie, the same thing happens. The Jacqueline Bisset character, who's the employer, is asked after meeting Sandrine Bonaire, who plays the housekeeper. That plays um, Sophie. Yeah, that plays Sophie. Her son asks her, so what, what does the new housekeeper look like? Sandrine Bonaire is a very beautiful woman. She says, I, I forget. Mm. And she's been sitting across the table for, her for 20 minutes an hour ago in a restaurant. So they've got all these kind of cool similarities between these two movies. I'm jumping ahead, I think, so forgive me. But. A little bit, but that's okay. The film's title, Parasite, has a double meaning. Mm-hmm. Bong said, quote, because the story is about the poor family infiltrating and creeping into the rich house, it seems very obvious that Parasite refers to the poor family. 
But if you look at it the other way, you can say that the rich family, they're also parasites in terms of labor. They can't even wash dishes. They can't drive themselves. So they leech off the poor family's labor. So both are parasites. In mm-hmm. mm-hmm. coronavirus, capitalism goes to the cinema. Critic Nolman writes that the etymology of the word parasite originally refers to, quote, people who eat at the table of another. And that's exactly what happens at one point in the film. Kim family gather around the park's table and eat there. Huh. Um, one thing, though, that we'll talk about later, we won't talk about it now, but I will mention it, is that as well as Bong using his own life as part of the basis for it, both Parasite and Les Ceremonies draw inspiration from something that really happened. It took place in 1933. Two servants, Christine and Leah Papin, killed their employer and her daughter. But Parasite was also inspired by a 1960 South Korean film, The Housekeeper, as well, which I highly recommend. It's one of the very few South Korean films before the new wave that we tend to see over here. Mm -hmm. The reason why I felt it was a bit slow and awkward is because of that long scene where the Kim family sit around the park table eating. This dialogue goes on for quite a while, and it also feels redundant. You know, I say, I got the point really quick, and I kept saying, it's time to move on. Yeah, I Uh, agree with you. It's almost like a centerpiece, the ceremony before the fall. Right. I think that's what they were trying to do, but I agree with you. I got the point also. What you were saying was really interesting about the word parasite. Never heard that before, but what I read recently, the parks are away. Their new wealth whitewashes some of the park culpability for their poverty. I mean, a tiered society, everybody's complicit, those who benefit and those who don't, unless you're objecting. I was thinking maybe they're, they're sin eaters. Not that he intended that, but I think you see that a lot where somebody is rewarded for somebody else's. Well, I think that's a very interesting observation. I think that's well taken. How do you feel about the ending? And by the ending, I mean after the violence, after the murder. Unsatisfactory. I think it was the strongest point in the movie. I love the idea that the father had found that place in terms of a story plot element that he was now in the basement apartment. So there's a wonderful circular aspect to the plot bookending uh, to a certain extent. But I found the plausibility of the son that this father would be doing this Morris code, you know, endlessly with his lights and the son happened to be going by mm, too big of a stretch and I wish they'd worked out something else. According to Bong, it's all fantasy. I think I agree with you. I find that a little unsatisfactory because you know, because we don't know really what happens. Fong said there's no way the son would ever make enough money to buy that house. And Choi Wook-shik, the actor who played the mm-hmm. son, estimated that it would take approximately 564 years <laughs> for Ki Woo to earn enough money to purchase the house. Well, you and never so know. it does have a convenient, ambiguous yeah. ending. I think it's also a bit ambiguous because I'm not sure everybody realizes that it's fantasy. I don't uh, think it matters if it is fantasy or not, because every movie's fantasy, right? Right. I thought it was beautifully done. I love the, the circular ending, but it's just not credible. This is a masterpiece, you know, so. Don't want to be too no, rough. No, if 99.99% of a movie is genius, you know, I'll go with that. Do you have a favorite performance in Parasite? I think the father is the one that drew me in the most. He had this beautiful face. 
I think of Rembrandt drawings and uh, beautiful faces that draw your empathy. His face drew my empathy. I was very taken by his performance. And that moment when he sees Mr. Park put his fingers to his nose, that there's a still, I mean, there's a close-up of him, which is incredible. I agree. Song Kang-ho, who plays the Kim father, mm -hmm. is not only one of Korea's greatest actors, he is yeah, one of the I, world's yeah. greatest actors. I didn't know that. Uh, boy. He's not handsome, but he still plays leading men. In many ways, he's like our Gene Hackman and Walter Matthau, who play leading roles, even though they don't look like Robert Redford. I think you said it very well when you said it looks lived in. Yeah, a face that's lived in it, it brings wisdom. And in contrast, the head of the Park family looks like he could be on the cover of GQ. Oh, yeah. And there's something distrustful about that. You were talking about the climax, and Bong Joon-ho said in an interview with The Atlantic that in the climax, the character, the Kim father, doesn't have any lines. It's the subtle changes in his muscles, mm -hmm. the subtle tremors that have to convince the audience of the entire film mm -hmm. and songs that strength yeah. as an actor. Yeah. I remember that shot when he realizes the contempt that Park has for this dying man. And Mr. Park in that scene, when everybody's getting chopped up, they grab their child who's had a seizure, I think, and they run. Well, before moving on to the next film, there are two other areas we should discuss, and that is the cinematography and the set design. Oh, yeah. And well, I think you mentioned the film just has this look from the very first shot. Yeah. And it carries that throughout the film. The camera plays just seems incredible mm -hmm. and incredibly on point. Mm -hmm. And that's what Spielberg was. People always commented who know a lot more about cinematography and camera than I do. I've always said that the, one of Spielberg's gift is he knew exactly where to place the camera. And you see a lot of that here. I loved the way they used, and I think you you mentioned the ascending the stairs and descending the stairs, the use of flooding and rain and lighting, and the surprise element of this murderous happening in the middle of a birthday party in daylight. Those are inspired uh, moments, I thought. Also, what's going on, the architecture of the house lent itself to so much storytelling also, the upstairs and the downstairs and the basement. So you have the Kims going from their basement apartment, the, where we first meet them, to the father ending up once again in a basement apartment at the end of the movie. I mean, full circle, just physically in terms of using location to help tell the story. That, you know, one of the messages is you're not going to rise no matter how hard you try. And there's a scene where they're defeated and there's been a flood and they're living in this some kind of community center. Everybody's been flooded out. And the Kims are there, and the father is sleeping on the floor with, and his son is beside him. He's whispering to him at night. He says something like, you know, the best way to fail is to have a plan. The best way not to fail is not to have a plan. And all the way up to that moment, he's had plan after plan after plan and advising his son to always have a plan. So this is a turning point for him where his hope, his stoicism, his plowing through has really taken a beating because maybe all his ambition and his hopes to be able to rise out of that basement apartment is never going to happen. And then when the, the park father puts his fingers on his nose, you realize that he will never be accepted as one of those guys. He is seen as 
inconsequential, invisible. He didn't know he was invisible. The cinematographer was Hong Kyung Kyo, and he has worked with several acclaimed film directors. He's becoming one of the world's prominent cinematographers. Mm-hmm. I felt that when it came to the sets, that they're pretty much characters in their own right. Yeah. They see everything about everything that the people are going through. Mm-hmm. The Kim's basement apartment with a toilet on the ledge, which I think just about says it all, mm-hmm. it was built on a set in order to be able to do the flooding scenes. Lee Han Shun, who's designed the sets along with Cho Wan Wu, visited and photographed several abandoned villages and towns in South Korea scheduled to be torn down to help them inform the set design. The park's house was also specially constructed. The ground floor and garden were built on an empty outdoor lot, while the basement and first floor were constructed on a set. And it's a modernist, minimalist wonder. Yeah, it's gorgeous. A.O. Scott for the New York Times said the film is wildly entertaining, the kind of smart, generous, aesthetically energized movie that obliterates the tired distinctions between art films and popcorn movies. And Variety's Jessica Kiang described the film as a wild, wild ride, bowing his back and on brilliant form, but he is unmistakably warringly furious, and it registers because the target is so deserving, so yeah. enormous, so 2019. Parasite is a tick fat with the bitter blood of class rage. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. Parasite grossed. million. It was seen by one-fifth of South Korea's population, and I believe was the number one film at the box office there. The film premiered at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, where it became the first Korean film to win its top prize, the Palme d'Or. Parasite won four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best International Feature Film, becoming the first non-English language film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. It is the first South Korean film to receive any Academy Award recognition and only one of three films to win both Palme d'Or and the Academy Award for Best Picture. It was also nominated for production design and editing. This was also the year of Once Upon a Time in America. A six-part series for HBO is being planned revolving around Lee Jung Yoon as Guk Moon Gwang, who played the housekeeper but who also worked for the house's architect and previous owner of the home. Of the oh, home. what a great idea. I think it's going to be using American actors, but don't quote me, because I think Mark Ruffalo is up for one of the roles. The film was produced for release in color, but a black and white version was produced prior to the world premiere in Cannes and debuted at the International Film Festival in Rotterdam. People began posting videos on how to make Japaguri, which is called Ramdan in the film's English subtitles, on YouTube after the film was distributed. The name Ramdan was invented exclusively for the film and assigned for English speakers, being a combination of Raman and Udon. And a fictional architect, Namgun Hyeonja, was created as the home's designer and previous owner before the parks. Well, with that, let's get to my selection, and that is La Ceremonie. However, first, we are going to take a moment and listen to a promo from a fellow podcaster. And while we are doing that, take this time to like, follow, or comment on the podcast. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. 
And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases. We don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. Welcome back. First, some information about the film. La Ceremonie is a French-German psychological thriller released in 1995. It was written and directed by Claude Chabral, adapted from the 1977 novel A Judgment in Stone by Ruth Rindle. It mm. stars Isabel Hubert, Sandrine Bonnard, Jacqueline Bissett, Jean-Pierre Cassel, Virginie Ledoyen, Valentin Merlet, and Serge Rousseau. The Lalivra family, who live in an isolated mansion in Brittany, hire a new housekeeper, Sophie. But Sophie has a secret. She is illiterate. She can't read or write. This secret, along with her friendship with the local postmistress, Jean, who is aggressive and delights the Lalivras, Lalivras, or whatever, I'm sorry. I've heard it pronounced, but I just can't pronounce it. So what do you think of the pairing of the two films? How do they fit together? What are some of the similarities and differences that you see here? I got this idea, this an epiphany <laughs> right before we started this. And that was that it's almost like Parasite is the first film and The Ceremony is the second film. Because the backstory in The Ceremony, I'll just call it The Ceremony. In The Ceremony, it's all about the backstory of these two young girls, Sophie, who's the new housekeeper, and Jean, who works at the post office. They both have these big backstories, right? Both involve death, and both have been accused of murder, and both were were let go. They were not exonerated, but there wasn't enough proof. One was for the death of a toddler, and one was for the death of Sophie's father in the burning down of a house. So that's really interesting. So what's the starting point of the ceremony, these two women are both crazy. They've had so many horrible things happen to them, we imagine. We don't know what they are exactly, but we imagine that we're filling in the dots. Something horrible must have happened to this gene post office clerk, the single mom who kills her toddler. And something terrible must have happened to Sophie that she has, she's illiterate. She's completely invisible. When somebody asks her, what do you want? Whatever she says, I don't know. I don't know. All the way through when somebody, do you like this? Do you like that? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever the other person wants. So she's completely a passive character, like a blank sheet. Then if you go to Parasite, we see the disaster that created the father character, right? So it's almost like that film is the backstory, an equivalent tragedy that I'm assuming that the characters in La Ceremonie that's the first episode, and this is the second episode, because two mad women enter the picture already have been traumatized beyond belief, recognize the trauma in each other, and what somebody traumatized is capable of, essentially murder. I think that's very true. There is something wrong with both of these women. Sometimes in murder cases like this, such as Leopold and Loeb, it's when someone like Sophie, who is, as you say, very passive and mm. doesn't really have a life and is isolated, meets a sociopath. Right. Interesting is they both are sociopaths. Right. Because Sophie's killed her father. And at the very end, it's Sophie who picks up the shotgun and murders everybody. It isn't Jean who does that. It's Sophie right. who very calmly does it. So maybe you've got one sociopath and one psychopath. That's very possible. I but think that's like, probably a better way of yeah, describing like, it. Yeah, like folie à deux, right? 
two mad women recognize each other and that the rules don't apply to them. And when they have that laughing scene, they both discover that they've killed, each killed somebody. They're laughing and neither of them have any remorse, guilt or shame, which are the hallmark characteristics of sociopaths and psychopaths. I think that's very true. I think you make some really good points there. One thing that is similar in both cases is that class warfare drives both films and the politics are the same. In both cases, the Waldorf family is very nice, but somehow this makes them less likable and unsympathetic. Oh, I I love that point. I love that point. That's so true. And I think that is the failure of most people trying to be too nice Uh, because they're disrespected if they are. Right. In addition, both are influenced by American films, and the directors came out of new wave movements. Claude Chabral was perhaps the earliest practitioner of the French New Wave that it grew out of a rejection of what we might call the prestige pictures of the French studios were making at the time, as well as the rise of existentialism in response to the death of modernism after World War II. And they were both especially influenced by American film noir and directors like Alfred Hitchcock. The more I know about movies, when people talk about new wave, you know, French new wave, very importantly, I think, included is the impact of World War II and the aftermath, because that's when these movies like neorealism, French new wave came out. And film was very, very expensive because it's an oil product. Are you familiar with Bazin, the guy who was the editor of the... Yes. He talked about mise-en-scene as the style of shooting, not them taking a production, but other meaning, which was shooting long takes, open air, and arranging, choreographing the action in front of the camera so you didn't have to edit, just like in Rope, right? Right. Um, He called that mise-en-scene. And it's usually deep focus photography, open air. You move the props in the whatever it is and the actors to uh, walk into a close up, walk out into a wide, et cetera, right? And you do push ins and pull out stuff on dollies and all that kind of stuff. And one of the reasons they did all that is yes, I agree with you in terms of the nihilism of the post war period, but also money because a long take is a lot cheaper to make than what they called American coupage. Sounds pretentious, so forgive me, but like a whole bunch of cuts, right? That's what Bazan would call it. Because they couldn't afford the studios and they couldn't afford doing a whole bunch of multiple camera setups. And even like the jump cut and all that kind of stuff was mythologized for years and years. And now I think people are speaking about it more realistically. It was because they did have the same money to make uh, high budget films like Americans at the time. But the resourcefulness, given their, you know, the control of a budget, showed their resourcefulness creatively so that they could still harness that and make a film that spoke about their world. Claude Chabral, who was the most successful at the beginning of these filmmakers, was known for giving away film stock at the end of reels that he didn't use. Oh, yes, so, yes, yes. Absolutely, yes. I'm familiar with that, yeah. But Bong Joon-ho came out of the Korean New Wave. This really began in the 1990s with K-pop music. But what really helped in movies was the ending of censorship and a better economy following a financial crisis, mainly in the exportation of pop culture. Korea became like the number one country for exporting pop culture. And then it moved to movies in the early 2000s. That was one of their major ways of making money was exporting pop culture. So the films we get over here are the genre films 
inspired by pop culture aesthetic. Mm -hmm. We should also note, as I mentioned before, that both films were partially inspired by a real-life story, that of Christine and Nia Papin, two French maids who brutally murdered their employer's wife and daughter in 1933. Wow. Uh, the same incident also inspired the maids by Jean Chenet. In, oh, yes, I've read that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In France, this historical murder was seen in terms of mm. the inequality of the classes at the time. Mm. It was a perfect symbol for this class mm -hmm. conflict. Now, when did you first see La Ceremonie? When you recommended it. I had never seen it before. And what did you think? I've seen the movie uh, Vagabond many, many times with uh, Sandrine Bonaire. And I thought she was an amazing actress. It's a road movie. Of course, Jacqueline Set is Canadian. I'm Canadian. I thought, of course, I'm very familiar with her work and Isabelle Hubert. But I thought, oh, these three in a movie, how wonderful. So I was very happy to see it. So my first take was it was so different than Parasite. And I found it so exciting because two people can tell a similar story and render it entirely differently. And both are, are wonderful. I saw it when it first came out, and I thought it was one of the best films of the year. Oh. I think it may be Claude Chabrol's finest films okay. uh, with incredible acting. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. This is either the third or fourth time I've seen it. Well, it's got an incredible cast. These three women. I'm not familiar with Jean-Pierre Cassel. I don't know him. He's the husband to Jacqueline Bassett. The other three women are just powerhouse acts. Do you have any favorite scenes of film? Oh, goodness. There are so many. I love the beginning scene where the two are faced its employer and employee and it's the only moment when the both are equal when they're doing the interview because either can walk away and both are bargaining and they're positioned they're about the same height their noses are facing each other they're positioned uh, balanced in the frame what's fascinating is that it told the whole story at the beginning because the Jacqueline Bisset, Madame Lalive, doesn't ask her anything, doesn't ask Sophie for references, how much she wants to be paid, and it's zero. She doesn't care. She's going to hire her no matter what because it's hard to get people to be housed. She's going to be in such a remote location because it's six miles out of town. Yeah, and it's a small town to begin with, right? So that was very telling the other thing I found that no one notices that she's illiterate. And at the very beginning of the movie, and I saw this, this wasn't my observation. I read this somewhere. What's interesting is when she first meets the uh, Jacqueline Bisset at the train station, she's literally on the other side of the track. She's not on the proper side of the tracks. She's come early, possibly. And you don't know how devious this young woman is, but what I love about it is that it begins to hint, 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 just like they did in Parasite, a bad things just around the corner. Because Sophie behaves strangely in that she doesn't ever discuss preferences. She doesn't seem to have any will of her own, even in that first scene. She offers up a uh, reference, which we're not sure what happened to the original family who supposedly moved to Portugal. <laughs> oh, it has all these little Trojan horses, horse little hits and things like that all over the place. I found very so. There's not one scene I would think is my favorite. I just love how the Chabral embedded clues throughout. When it comes to the train station, mm. she had to get there early since she can't read and isn't sure mm. of the train schedule. Yeah. She has to oh, get there a lot. Brilliant. Yes, Howard, that's exactly yeah. why. That makes perfect sense. I don't think I realized that until maybe the second or third time I saw it. 
favorite scene of the whole film is when Melinda helped Jean with the car. And somehow this shows the relationship of the classes in the movie. Melinda is very kind. Yeah. But there's also something rather elitist and privileged about her as well. Yes, yes, yes. And I think this thing with the car just shows what the basic conflict is. But also, you you were talking about the first scene and also about her being on the wrong side of the train platform. Mm. There is a shot in the opening scene that reveals Sophie's illiteracy, Mm -hmm. though you would never know it without seeing the film a second or third time. And Sophie is about to enter a restaurant, but then asks someone where something is. And he points across the street. Sophie should have been able to tell immediately that that was the place she was looking for. Mm. But since she's illiterate, she can't. She has to ask someone. Mm. Excellent. I just, when you see a movie the second time and it gets better, it's a great movie, huh? Right. The ending also feels incredibly French. That nice little twist in which crime doesn't pay and the postman already swings twice when Jean gets hit by the truck. You just can't get away with crime, generally <laughs> in France. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, the but directing, go ahead. <laughs> the, the directing and writing was Claude Chabral. Are you familiar with him? Do you have a favorite film of his? And what do you think of his direction here? So this is a very different style of directing. And I think you're right. It has a lot of roots in a new way than that. You have the long take. You don't have a lot of quick cut, multiple camera setups in a scene. You only have one or two shots. I like the directing. I think it's beautiful. It's very rich in terms of how he used the background as a source of suspense by just keep tantalizing us about how bad the bad guys are. First, I'm torn because at one point I'm sympathetic. The woman's illiterate, right? This other girl is, she's living in this post-sized apartment and she's off. I don't know why she's off, but they're both kind of off. And I'm thinking maybe they were sexual harassment. Maybe they were raped. Maybe there was molestation. I've got all this thinking in my head, what could have happened to these girls at this girl? And then you find that she's burnt the house of her father. And well, why would somebody do that? Some traumatic thing must have happened. So he's got me filling in the blank. He's presented so many disturbing questions to me. I'm so engaged. I have to continue to watch. So in that, both directors know how to, you know, obviously these two guys know how to keep us wanting more. Tell us the answer. These are all riddle plots. There is something from the very beginning. There's tension and you're not sure why there's tension, but you just know that there's something off. Yeah. And it takes a while to find out what it is. And these directors do it differently. Uh, They also alert us that there's something a little tilted in this world. So stay tuned and you'll get out. So it's very exciting. I think you're very much right that he still retains a lot of the aspects of the French New Wave. Mm -hmm. It's not as beautifully placed or framed as what would be called prestige pictures or well-made film that it was rebelling about. More as he went along, it became much more commercial and much less new wave, but it still has that sort of raggedy feel about it where they weren't quite as worried about that as they were about other aspects of it. He is one of my favorite French directors. Mm-hmm. He had he had sort of a three-act career. He was one of the founders of the French New Wave and averaged one film a year. His early films would be considered experimental and aesthetic at the time. Then they became very mainstream. But then he had a period where his films were not many, and the critics didn't like it. 
So he eventually started making more and more commercial films, especially after casting Isabel Huppert, who has been in seven of his films. Oh, really? So he had a renaissance in the third part of his career as he got farther away from the new wave. I've seen a large number of his early films. I've seen a large number of his later films. But this Mm -hmm. in-between period where nothing was working for him, I'm not as familiar with it. The American film critic James Monaco called Chabral, quote, the craftsman par excellence of the new wave and his variations upon a theme give us an understanding of the explicitness and precision of the language of the film that we don't get from more varied experiments in genre of Truffaut and Godard. In the 60s, his films became more about the bourgeois and a murder is almost always a part of the film. He is often called the French Alfred Hitchcock because of all the thrillers that he made. Both he and Bong are highly influenced by American culture and mm. Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. His shooting is like Spielberg in terms of always knowing where to place the camera and with so much purpose. Every shot is considered to advance the story, not just the aesthetic. A couple of things I thought were interesting in terms of comparing these two films. Mm-hmm. So Sophie and Jean, the the post office worker clerk, both of them have no hope of changing their station in life. And when an idea of teaching this young girl how to read and write by the Lelièvre's daughter, she rejects it immediately. When they offer her glasses, when they think that she can't see driving lessons, she rejects it. Any help, they both reject. And the similarity is that the scene that you were talking about when Jean, the post uh, office clerk, has trouble with her car and the daughter of uh, Sophie's employer comes by to try to help. She takes the help, doesn't say thank you, is a complete ingrate, right? Again, because I don't think either of them believe that there was hope, change was a possibility, but obviously in Parasite, that was not true. They did have hope until the very, very end. And that's why I think the Parasite character, it's almost like we're seeing the backstory, a form of backstory to explain why these two mad women show up at the beginning of this film, having already had something so traumatic happening to them, they already start with no hope. In Parasite, we start with hope and end with no hope or very little hope. And then we have the little poignant bit at the end where the sun writes the letter and I'm going to buy the house and I'm going to save you. What the wealthy family doesn't seem to realize is that, and this is true of both the Jean and Sophie, is that mm-hmm. any help they offer or give is very humiliating to the two women. Mm-hmm. They don't mean to humiliate the women, but it's very humiliating to have to admit, I can't read, I can't write, I have trouble with this car and I can't afford a better one. There's just something really humiliating at times. And there's lots of parallels that are beautifully drawn here because Jean is an um, unwed mother. She had a child. She was by herself raising this. No support from her family, we're told. And then when Liliev's daughter gets pregnant, everyone rallies around her. Either of these young women didn't have this kind of support. There's a jealousy there because they've kind of been abandoned by society, by institutions, etc., I think they have both of them have a very calcified view of the class system and i think that's why they don't accept kindnesses because i don't think it's going to get them anywhere the bourgeoisie oh, is the enemy full stop and you owe the people now and there's nothing worse than owing rich people and what you, you said it's humiliating right yeah yes do you have a favorite performance in La Ceremonie? I did like the uh, performance of uh, Sandrine Bonaire all the way through and everyone else. I think she's prepared. 
brilliant here. It's yeah. one of her greatest performances. And she is one of the greatest actors in the world. I call her the Betty Davis of French films. And she and Sandrine Bonaire have great chemistry together. A couple of things in terms of establishing the invisibility of characters in this movie. I noticed that, for example, when family Lelievs were eating, they're all eating together. And of course, Sophie is in the kitchen. When they're watching television, they're all together on the couch. Sophie is, you know, supposed to disappear somewhere, presumably. And I mentioned earlier when Sophie's employer is asked, well, what did she look like? What did the new housekeeper look like? She forgot what she looked like. And then a really interesting little tuck-in was when her employer asks her to go and get food, she orders four of everything. So four pork chops, four this, four that, four drinks, whatever. Not five, there are five people but she orders only four of everything. And the first time we see her, Sophie, it's in the kitchen and she eats this ravenous animal. And then outside the door, of course, is the family eating very politely. But so there's no room for her on the couch. There's no room for her at the table. There's no room for her on the grocery list. And no one remembers what she looks like. So I thought these were wonderful little tuck-ins that add to the richness of the storytelling. And I think that as I was watching the two, I was taking some notes and neither the park nor the Lelievs care about the background of either of these characters. They don't check up on whether the Kim's kid actually went to college. They don't check whether the girl went to Illinois State or wherever it was and went to art school. There's no checking up. They just want somebody employed and there's no checking up either of Sophie's background. And they just glide over to the next set of helpers. In both films, what you were mentioning about humiliation, both of the families humiliate their workers, you know, their staff, and are completely unaware of it. Right. Um, Craig Williams on the BFI website called it, quote, perhaps Chabral's greatest achievement, unquote, and, quote, the consummate example of Chabral's genius, a ruthlessly exciting vision of class indebted to both the pulp aesthetic and French literary tradition. And the Criterion Collection called La Ceremonie, quote, must see late career triumph that exemplifies the new wave auteur's mastery of suspense and twisted psychodrama. With that, here is some more information about the film. The film made $10,882,000 at the box office. I don't have the information as how much it cost to make, but I think it was a very successful film. Mm-hmm. It received seven nominations for the Caesar Awards, which is the French equivalent of the Oscar. Best Film, Directing, Writing, two Best Actress noms, Supporting Actress for Bissett and Supporting for Casal. And it won Best Actress for Huppert. It won Best Foreign Language Film from the Los Angeles Film Critics and the National Society of Film Critics. The author of the novel the film is based on, Ruth Rindle, said that Claude Chabrol's version is one of the few film adaptations of her work that she is happy with. The French love American and British mysteries and thrillers. They're constantly adapting them into film. This is the second movie adaptation of A Judgment in Stone. The first one kept the name of the novel and was released in 1986. It starred Rita Chishingham. I didn't see it, but I remember this film because Siskel and Ebert reviewed it on their show and they hated it, calling it one of the worst films of the year. I mean, they took no prisoners. 
The title La Ceremonie is an expression that refers to a person's execution for a capital crime. The film Jacqueline Bissett and Valentin Merlet are watching is Wedding in Blood from 1973, also directed by Claude Chabral. The opera they watch at the end is Don Giovanni, in which the central character ends up being dragged to hell. And if Jean-Pierre Cassel looks familiar, it is because he very much looks like his son, Vince Cassel. Oh. With that, uh, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. The first film I was thinking about that goes along with this, you mentioned earlier, Howard, was The Servant with a Dick Bogart, uh, which is a, you know just a tremendous film. And a film that I've seen recently, which is, I think, available now on Netflix, is Nyad. Uh, Annette Benning and Jodie Foster, I think they both were, did some producing on, I think Jodie Foster may have been the lead on that. And Annette Benning does a remarkable job, I think. And if people are interested in, we were talking about Korean uh, pop culture, or I would see the TV series called The Extraordinary Attorney Wu. It's a tremendous TV series. Uh, the main character is an attorney. She's on the spectrum. Well, that's great. I've chosen three, and one of them is The Servant from 1963, <laughs> directed by Joseph Lucy and written by Harold Pinter. And it's about a manservant who seems fine at first, but as time goes on, begins to manipulate and take control mm. of his employer. In 1937, we have Night Must Fall from the play by Emmeline Williams. It's about a serial killer who worms his way into well-off woman's employment. And as in many of these stories, you both dislike and feel sorry for the employer. It stars Robert Montgomery and Dame Mae Whitty, both of whom got Oscar nominations for the film. And the next one is the director Charles Bedore's Ladies in Retirement. I didn't write down the date. I think it's 1940s. It's about a maid to a well-off woman. Uh, she's been working with her for two years, but she has two sisters, neither of whom are mentally stable. And when they're being thrown out of their home, the maid manages to get her employee to let them come stay for a while. But when the woman eventually insists they leave, the maid feels she has little choice in what happens next. Uh, this one stars Ida Lupino. Wonderful. Wonderful um, choices. Wonderful choices, Howard. What is next? What should we be expecting from you? Well, I'm going to do another version of my wonderful book. <laughs> I'll be self-promotional, cinematic storytelling. And that should be out probably in the next eight months to a year. And I'm working on a couple of scripts that one's sort of like a midnight cowboy and one is a comedy. I'll keep you updated on how that goes. That's fantastic. Well, as for me, I'll list my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kasner Screenplay Consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. The previous episode was with Attorney by Day, Murder Mystery Host by Night, and film podcaster Sean Homrig, where we discussed The Ice Storm and Peyton Place, two soap opera looks at their time periods. The next episode will be with my annual guest for my November show, podcaster and film enthusiast Richard Kirkham. Well, we will discuss two films about someone running for office, 
since it is November, one a progressive, one a conservative, and the candidate and Bob Roberts. So once again, thank you, Jennifer, for being a guest on my show. Okay, thank you so very much. I've so enjoyed it. I've learned so much, and I really appreciate you having me as your guest. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.